0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Memory Lane. I am your host, Noah Hiles, and joining us today on the show is a man who needs no introduction, former pirate skipper, Jim Leland. Jim, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing all right. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited for this interview. I've been trying to book you for a little bit now, and it's great to have you on.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
0: So there's a lot that I want to ask you about, but I figure we'll start from the beginning. Uh, with your professional managerial career, at least in the big leagues. You get the opportunity with the Pirates in 1986, and this comes after a, a very long road traveled. You start off uh, in the minor leagues in the, in the Tigers system, and then you coach third base for the White Sox with Tony La Russa. What did it mean to you to finally get that first manager job in Pittsburgh after all of those years?
1: Well, I was You know, I was in the minor leagues 18 years with the Tigers, and I moved over to Chicago to coach search for Tony LaRussa. And uh, as soon as I did, after my first year, uh, you know, I got a couple of interviews for major league jobs. Uh, I always seemed to be the bridesmaid, always the runner up, and uh, didn't know if it was really ever going to happen. And I can remember when I finally did get the call from Pittsburgh, I remember telling Sid Thrift that, uh, you know, if I'm a serious candidate, I'm going to come in for the interview. But if I'm not, I don't want to be a newspaper article for another week that you're interviewing me if, if you're know if you not serious. Uh, if you're serious, I'd be glad to talk to you, but I already signed to go back with the White Sox as a coach. He said no, he was serious, so I did come in for the interview, and uh, I guess the rest is history.
0: So going through your earlier days with the Pirates, I read a story where you were talking about how you won Co-Manager of the Year in in, in 1988, and you brought it up to your dad, and he kind of said, "Well." that's not anything special come to me when you win manager of the year and how he kind of always motivated you and uh, pushed you to do better. My question is, was that like an underlying theme for just your entire life in baseball and even outside of baseball?
1: Well, I think your parents always have a lot of influence. Obviously my dad was a former uh, semi pro player, you know, and very much a competitor and things of that nature. So yeah, he always kept you humble and he always kept you moving towards the, you know, your next goal. So he didn't want you to be satisfied. I think he was thrilled that I was co-manager of the year with Tommy Lasorda that year, but he really didn't want to let me know that. And uh, I think it was just, that was his way of motivating you to, you know, to keep going forward and and to try to keep achieving things and, and get better as you went along. So, you know, I was a little disappointed when he said that at first, but I realized I knew my dad and. I realized that, like I said, that was just a motivation to keep me going.
0: Did you take that similar approach to players and maybe your own kids throughout your life?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I, it probably wasn't quite as hard as my dad was, but I always tried to keep people motivated, trying to, I guess what I wanted to do was I wanted to get the best that they had out of every player I had. Uh, Try to get the best out of my family, my son and my daughter, um, you know, not being pushy, not being ridiculous, but. At the same time i I always wanted the players to set their the bar high you know and um you know i thought the only way you could do that was to keep them motivated and you know sometimes it's hard to motivate major league players because i've always taken the attitude you know when you're playing a game of baseball at the major league level you should you really shouldn't need motivated you ought to be thrilled the fact that you're in the big leagues and you're playing at the highest level that should be enough motivation but it's sometimes Things are going rough for players, you know, maybe they're not having a good year and you, you just have to be there for them. And you know, My philosophy has always been, you know, you don't need the manager when things are going good. The press loves you, the fans love you, you know, but when you're going bad, you, you, you're you kind of, uh, you know, you're kind of an orphan, to be honest with you. You don't know what he talks to you much and, you know, you're not getting good publicity and things of that nature. So I always tried to be there when my players needed me the most.
0: So you get to Pittsburgh in the mid-80s, and you play a pretty big role in building what ended up being a three-time division-winning team. Uh, Some really big prospects get called up. Some big trades were made. Uh, Take me through the entire experience of watching those really good clubs kind of come together over the years.
1: Well, I don't know if people ever really realize what a great job Sid Swift did, our general manager. Um... You know, he came in with a new attitude. He was a sharp baseball guy. Had been in development for a long time, scouting. Yeah, he, you know, he knew how to go about it, and he had he had a lot of nerve. He was not afraid to make a trade. You know, some some guy, guy can get a little shy about that, but he was he was very good at it. And he also, and in practically every trade he made, he brought back some type of a pitcher, uh, maybe some no name pitcher, but he always brought a pitcher back because he wanted to build up the pitching depth in the organization. So I think that turnaround really started with Sid. He did a great job, and then we kind of, you know, carried it on from the clubhouse and the field, uh, so to speak. But, you know, Sid Swift deserves a lot of credit for what he did here. He did a great job.
0: So he finds the talent, but then your responsibility is to develop it and help it translate into wins. How do you go about that when you see that these prospects are being acquired when stars like Barry Bonds are coming up? through the minor league pipeline, how do you create a culture that will teach both patience and excellence?
1: Well, I think you have to understand that patience is a virtue. You know, they're not going to come up very rarely. Even the star players that turn out to be stars and superstars really don't come up to the major leagues and tear it up right away. So you got to be careful that you, you know, you modify your expectations a little bit. You know, you don't try to put too much pressure on them. Um, You try to break them in you know you try to give them a little take a little take a little off put a little on and you know you just use your own psych to to kind of mold those players into the type of players you think they could be and that's that's your responsibility my job is to make the players better and ultimately your job as a major league manager let's say is to win that's that's the bottom line at the major league level but really you know the prospects are for the minor leagues Uh, the major leagues is about winning so but you know it's going to take some time we were a young team and and uh, we tried to go slow with it, and it actually came about right on schedule. I think our fifth year, we won a division title for the first time. So uh, it was a process, but it was a process that I think had to play out the way it did. And you can't rush it. You know, you can't make a five-year player out of a two-year player. It just doesn't work. So uh, there has to be some patience involved. But you could see at the end of the tunnel, there was a lot of light with that, that particular group.
0: I want to talk to you about a guy uh, whose name I just brought up, and that's Barry Bonds. Um, you guys obviously had an interesting relationship. Uh, most notably, there was a dust-up between the two of you in spring training in 1991. I was just wondering if you could talk about that, uh, that dust-up, that argument, and uh, if you would be able to, I guess, say if that changed your relationship between the two of you in a good way or a bad way.
1: No, I don't think it changed anything. I think it was kind of an unfortunate situation. Uh, You know, I I come to find out later it wasn't everything I thought it was. I'm not really proud of that situation. Uh, You know, my language wasn't too good and it got on air and everything. I wasn't very proud of that. But at the same time, um, I just felt like Barry was being a little disrespectful to one of my coaches, uh, Bill Verdon in particular, a veteran guy, uh, you know, with a lot of thump behind his name. And. I uh, kind of took it wrong, and, and I kind of reacted, and, and Barry reacted to me, but, uh, you know, like I did pretty much all my career, if you had something come up like that, where, you know, things don't always go great in the clubhouse every day, there are disagreements, there are some arguments, you know, there's some yelling once in a while, I think, you know, if if you don't tell that to people, I mean, you're lying, because they do happen, you have some friction every now and then, as a manager, it's your responsibility to handle that, and, You know, sometimes you handle it perfect and other times you don't handle it quite as good. But that was a situation that it just came up. It was uh, kind of impulsive on both of our parts. Uh, It was over a half hour after it happened. Uh, We were in the clubhouse the next day, basically not laughing about that, but having conversation about trying to get better and making our team better and what kind of player he was and what kind of career I expected out of him because you could see the ceiling was so high. By the way, he's the best player I ever managed, and and maybe the best player to ever play. If people really want to tell the truth, but um, so it was great. We, I mean, we have a great relationship. Uh, I went out to his retirement ceremony in San Francisco when he retired his number. I spoke on the field. Barry and I have remained very close. Uh, Barry was one of those guys that you had to keep him guessing whether you really liked him a lot or not. Uh, if he, you know, if you fell all over him, he didn't like that. He didn't like people falling all over him and asking for stuff and trying to be his buddy. So I always tried to keep him guessing. You know, some days I'd walk by him and say, hello, how, how's it going? Other days I'd walk right by him, you know, because I always wanted him to be a little uncertain or not whether the old man likes him or not, you know, but, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's got a great
0: heart. He did a lot of Pittsburgh behind
1: the scenes and turned out, like I say, to be one of the greatest players I've ever played.
0: How thankful are you that social media didn't exist when that incident went down? Do you think that would have made things any more difficult in the clubhouse?
1: I don't think it would have had anything to do with Barry and my relationship. I think there was a mutual respect for one another. We actually liked each other. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it would have probably been talked about more, obviously, uh, because of social media. But I don't think it really would have had any, any anything to do with Barry and my relationship.
0: Do you think Barry deserves to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame?
1: I do. Okay. Um, I do. I think Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't know that he will or won't get in. That's not up to me. That's up to the people that vote. And certainly you respect that and you honor that. So, whatever their decision is, um, you know, that's what you have to go with. But I think anybody uh, in baseball that you know, knows the game and knows how good he was. Believes that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. He's certainly a good enough player to belong in the Hall of Fame. It's just uh, whether he's going to get in or not. And I, I really don't have any idea. He has gained some, some votes uh, the last couple times, and uh, hopefully he gets in. I'm, you know, like I said, I don't pick the people that go to the Hall of Fame, but I think it's ridiculous that Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds aren't in the Hall of Fame. I, I think they're both Hall of Famers. I think they both should be in.
0: I can't disagree with you there. Uh, I don't get a vote yet, so I won't be able to change anything, but hopefully I will one day. So moving forward, uh, talking about the 90s teams a bit more, I read in an interview with Andy Van Slyke that he said the 1991 team you guys had was the most talented, but the 1992 team was the best team uh, during your era there. Would you agree with that? And what's the difference between a team being the most talented and a team simply being the best group of players?
1: Well, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that or not. I guess I probably would. But uh, there, there is a little bit of difference uh, between the best team and a talented team. I think sometimes the best team you're talking about is because of the way everything meshes together. And a talented team is maybe you had more talent, but it didn't mesh together quite as well. Um, so I think there is a little bit of difference there. I think Andy's right on that. I'm not really sure which was the best team. You know, we had two chances at it. I will say this, our best chance was 92 because in 91, even though we took that one game lead, uh, Avery pitched the game of his life. Probably the best game I've ever seen pitched against me. And then of course, Smoltz backed him up with a good game as well. So, uh, but 92, uh, yeah, we should have won. And we had a freak ninth inning, a couple of things that happened that never happened before. And that's just the way it is. I mean, Chico had a ground ball that he never missed, and it was a double play ball, and it just happened. And nobody nobody was upset at Chico. I wasn't upset at Chico or anything else. It was just kind of a freak inning. Anyway, we had Barry Hill struck out. We didn't get the call. Uh, yeah. The game would have been over on Hunter's pop-up, but it didn't work out. So, you know, you can't go on throughout your life worried about that. It happened as part of the game. And, you know, like I said, when it happened, you know, you it's – We're all little leaguers at some point, even though we're major leaguers. Because when you saw that game, you saw one team jumping up and down like a bunch of little leaguers. And you saw a few other guys with tears in their eyes on the other side. So that's just the way this business is. And uh, you better have some thick skin if you want to stay in it.
0: You're one of the few guys who's been able to manage during different eras of baseball. I mean, you were managing the Pirates in the the mid-80s. And then you were managing the Detroit Tigers in the 2010s. So I wanted to ask you this question based on the perspective of you've been around the sea changes in the game. So, 1992 Game Seven, you leave Dre back in. He has a high pitch count, but as you've been on record saying, he was your guy. So you believed him in him, and you let him go. I was I'm wondering if you were in that same position in 2012 or 2013 with Justin Verlander. Do you do the same thing in Detroit? Do you go with your gut? Do you go with the guy or does the new technology in the game, does the analytics influence you to make a different choice?
1: No, I don't think so. I think I would have made the same decision I made. I think, you know, you're also talking about, um, you know, we had a good closer in Stan Belinda uh, and Drabeck was really hot that night. I thought he deserved to go out there In uh, I'd have Mariano Rivera. I probably would have made the change. Uh, and that's not to any disrespect to Stan Belinda he did an unbelievable job in fact that night he pitched as good as you could have pitched he gave up a ground ball that ended up being a base hit but he almost got out of that thing with no runs at all I thought he did a terrific job so uh, no I don't think so I think you we had all the information but I was going by what I saw Draybeck was handling pretty good um, you know I believe in all that stuff with the information and everything but I also believe you got a You know, you got to use your eyes, you got to use your gut a little bit. And uh, no, I wouldn't have done anything different.
0: I get what you mean. And also, there's the fact that people only seem to remember when you go with your gut and it's wrong. I mean, I'm sure there were many times in your career and a lot of other managers' careers where they went with their gut over the analytics or, you know, the sabermetrics or whatever, and it played out right. And no one seems to remember that. It's just when you leave a guy in too long, that's when it comes to get you.
1: You know, the people, the people talk about all this number stuff in today's game, really, they're really, they might not all know what they're talking about. There's, there's information you get from these people. And when you're sitting up on a box, any one through nine, that's easy to look and look at all the things there and all the addition and subtraction and all that kind of stuff. That's really not the game. That, that, that information should all be relayed to the manager prior to the game and let the manager use that information the way he sees fit and let the manager manage. Those people need to get the information provided for people, and they're very valuable and they're very smart. Nobody's arguing that. But once they give that information, they need to stay out of the way because they can't
0: manage. Do you think there was a case of that this year in the World Series in Game 6 with uh, Kevin Cash taking Blake Snell out? Well,
1: I have two opinions on that. Okay. I respect Kevin Cash. I think he's one of the best managers in all of baseball. I don't think there's any question about that. I respect Kevin Cash because of the fact that he did it the way the Tampa Bay Rays do things. He stuck with that. He did not deviate from what they do. That's what they do. However, I still think it was a wrong decision for this reason. He had his number one starter pitching and, I mean, had given up two scratch hits and had nine strikeouts. So to me, if you're talking about a fourth or fifth starter, and you know that third time around maybe, but the way Snell's pitching that night, I think you've got to use what you see a little bit more and kind of get away from from what they had done. Uh, I think that's one of those things where, you know, no two games are the same. It's a little bit different. And I think, to me, I put myself, I looked at it like this. If I would have taking Justin Verlander out after two scratch singles and five innings, I probably would have been shocked, (laughs) you know? So I think I respect him because he stayed with the script and he stayed with what they do and he believed in it. And he brought in a reliever that had not been that successful during the postseason, but had been a great reliever for him. So I I respect all that. I just think uh, it was probably the wrong decision.
0: So moving on with the Pirates talk here, after 1992, things changed drastically. As the manager of that club, did you anticipate it being that bad after the 92 season? I knew there were a lot of people who were well aware that there would be big names leaving and that the club wouldn't look the same. But did you anticipate that amount of struggle after guys like Bonds would depart?
1: was the manager, you, you know, particularly being in Pittsburgh during those years, you knew that we're not going to be the finances to go out and get the big free agents. So you knew the payroll was not going to be great. Uh, that's OK. I mean, in 1986, people don't believe this. Our payroll was ten million dollars the first year I took over our entire payroll. I mean, you get that for just a little bit better than a utility player today. So yeah. it was it was very unique. You know, and I, I knew that we were never going to have the finances to go big and, and really make a lot of additions. But I thought that we could kind of maintain it with our farm system and maybe go out and get just a little bit of help. I thought that'd be possible. Uh, so I wasn't really shocked. I knew it. I knew that some guys were going to be leaving. I knew Bonds was going to be leaving. You know, I I knew all that, but we had a pretty good farm system at the time. We had a young kid named Merced that just come up. and we You know, we still had some things going for us, Jeff King. So, Uh, You know, I thought we could maintain a lot. I didn't know for sure that we'd be able to win the division necessarily, but I thought we could be okay for a while.
0: Did it hurt to have to leave Pittsburgh, or were you more excited to turn the page and move on to a new opportunity? I know you accomplished a lot here, and I know uh, you really enjoyed the city, uh, but were you excited to move on, or did you want to stay longer?
1: Well, I never wanted to leave Pittsburgh. But I could see the writing on the wall. You know, when Kevin came in with the team, originally they thought they might be able to get a couple guys at, you know, smaller salaries and stuff, but maybe, you know, we could maintain a while. Then they, uh, Kevin basically told me that they were going to have to start all over again. So I could see the writing on the wall. But no, I did not want to leave Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, it's pretty nice when you're living in your hometown and you're managing in your hometown. And the only time you're away is on road trips. So you're there all year long. You're there all winter. You're there all summer with the exception of the road trips and stuff. And I love Pittsburgh. I had a great relationship. I felt with the city and the people. And I met a lot of people I had a lot of friends. So no, the last thing I wanted to do was go somewhere else. But, you know, when you're a competitor and your peers are telling you, you know, you're not going to be able to compete and people are going to start questioning, Hey, you know, you're a competitor and you know, you got no chance there. You know, you, you, you need to move on. So uh, they were right. I did need to move on. It was the right time. And, uh, you know, I'm very good friends with Kevin McClatchy. I understood what he was going through and what they were doing. I have no problems with any of that. But it was time, unfortunately, for me to move
0: on. Your next move is down south to the Marlins. And you take over there and you win a World Series in 1997 in, uh, in a game seven that you have been on the record to say is one of the more important games in baseball with a a relatively new franchise and a different market between teams that weren't huge market spenders. Uh, take me through that experience of winning your first world series title. Yeah,
1: you know, I've been on record as saying, I, I truly believe this. Had that game been between the New York Yankees and the New York Mets, it probably would have gone down as the second or third greatest seventh game of the world series of all time. Because, you know, because it was Cleveland and Florida, I never think I never thought that it got the respect that it deserved. I mean, how can you have a better Game 7 than to go extra innings, 11 innings, and the home team wins on a base hit with the bases loaded and two outs? I mean, that's pretty exciting, and that's, that's a pretty good series. So I felt like that series never got the credit it deserved. It, it probably never will. But that was one of the greatest Game 7s of all time, without question.
0: Do you think that that was your best managing performance of all time, that Game 7? I
1: think I had real good players.
0: <laughs> you definitely had good players, but you don't think you played a role in winning that game and winning that World Series that your managing didn't make a difference? You know, you, you
1: you go into every game, you try to manage to the best of your ability, you try to put your team in a situation to win, you try to put your players in the most successful situations for them. So that's all part of managing. Uh, you know, I hope I did a good job. We won the World Series, so at least I didn't screw it up. But, uh, so... You know, I, I don't know. I, I managed the best I could. Mark Mark uh, Mike Hargrove managed the best he could. And um, we just happened to come out on top.
0: I have a lot of family from Ohio, so I grew up uh, hearing about and reading and learning about those 90s Indians teams. Would you agree that that's probably one of the best clubs, maybe not even just 97, but that whole run they went on, one of the best clubs to never win a championship?
1: Cleveland team was really loaded offensively that year. Uh, their starting pitching maybe wasn't quite up to par of some of the great teams, but it was still good. But maybe not as quite. They probably didn't have <clears throat> that one real dominant, dominant guy <clears throat> that they needed. Maybe, but uh, that was one of the best offensive teams I've ever managed against.
0: We're gonna get right back to my interview with Jim Leland, but first, a word from our sponsors. So wrapping up your time in Miami, you mentioned how you had a lot of good players on that 97 team. Well, a lot of those players weren't around your next year in 98. Uh, can you talk about how frustrating it was to see that fire sale occur and to see that team broken up uh, so quickly after winning a championship?
1: Well, it was, it was frustrating because <clears throat> we had guys, Dave Dombrowski had done a great job. We had a great owner, by the way, Wayne Hizinga, that decided he just really didn't like the baseball business and uh, but we had a great general manager that had those guys signed to good contracts for a long time, five year contracts, stuff like that with pretty young guys in the best years of their life. <clears throat> so I, it was very disappointing you know, because we felt like we could compete uh, for the next four or five years for sure. At least have a great shot at winning the division or, or being a wild card or whatever it may be. We felt like we were going to be able to compete for a long time. Uh, Mr. Heisinger decided, that, like I said, that the baseball business really wasn't for him uh you know things got boggled up a little bit, and the club was sold and and uh you know Dave had his orders to move players and get rid of payroll, which we did and that year we played i think i think at some point thirty eight thirty eight rookies came through our ball club that year, and they were pretty good, actually, some of them had pretty good years individually, we just weren't ready to win as a team yet, but some of those members went on to win a championship for the Marlins five years later so uh it was actually a rewarding experience for me from a personal record standpoint it was a killer but it was rewarding because a lot of those young guys uh, they broke in that year they did pretty good individually and they went on to be world champions at, at, at one point in their career so uh, you know a tough time actually but also kind of a rewarding time do you still pull for the marlins do you still root for them yeah, I I mean, I don't go out of my way to pull for anybody but the Detroit Tigers right now. And of course, I always, uh, you know, I'm close to the Pittsburgh Pirates. So I always pull for the Pirates because they're Pittsburgh. I pull for Pitt, I, you know, pull for the Steelers, the Penguins. That's just the way it is. I've been here. I've lived here since 1985. So, you know, I've become a Pittsburgh and it's a, it's a great place. with, It's kind of a small town atmosphere with three really good major league, you know, teams as well as Pitt, so you know, yeah, I mean, I, I still pull, but yeah, I, I look out for the Marlins, and I got a you know, special place for them, we won a world championship there, and uh, Derek Jeter, who's a friend of mine, is down there running it now, so I'm, you know, I'm we're not best buddies, or that close, but we're friends and compete against each other, so yeah, I watch it, and I pull for them, and I just hope that uh, somehow, some way, they can entice more fans, because they got a pretty good young ball club, and we didn't really draw very well down there the year we won the World Series until we got to the postseason. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping it works out for everybody. And Kim, who just got the, the uh, general manager job, the first female to do a jump, is a very good friend of mine. We worked at MLB together. So, yeah, you know, I'm going to pull for him. I pull for baseball. Yeah. I, I, I pull for baseball. Particularly, I pull for the Detroit Tigers now because I still work for them.
0: So After Miami, you go to Colorado for a year, and then you take a break from managing for quite some time. Uh, what went behind that decision? I know you still were working in baseball as a scout, but what made you want to stop managing? I, I'm, I'm confident that you had other opportunities offered to you uh, during that downtime.
1: Well, in Colorado, I just did a bad job. I was a misfit there. I wasn't, I just, I just made a mistake. I had a couple of friends that were running the club along with the Montforts who I didn't really not know at the time, but I knew Bob Gebhardt Jerry Big Morris, and Jerry I, McMorris. And I decided to go out there, it was a mistake. I just, I didn't do a very good job. I, I just couldn't manage the pitching staff in that ballpark and I knew it. And I didn't think it was right to stay there. So I, I left and uh, as soon as I left, I, Ended up going with the St. Louis Cardinals, with my friend Tony LaRussa, for six years. I went and worked for the Cardinals, did some scouting right out of Pittsburgh for Walt Jocker, the general manager. And you know, about the third or fourth year, uh, I saw how much fun the Cardinals were having. They had good veterans, the, the clubhouse atmosphere was great. Um, you know, Tony kept pushing me a little bit, and, you know, it started to come back a little bit that I said, you know, I, I might want to do this again. And, uh, I didn't know for how long or with who, if I'd ever get an opportunity, but, you know, the opportunity came up with the Detroit Tigers, which is the team I signed with as an 18-year-old kid. So, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but I finally got there.
0: What was it like for that all to come full circle and for the Tigers of all teams to offer you an opportunity uh, that would probably end your career, be your last manager job? Uh, How much did that mean to you?
1: Well, it was neat. You know, I mean, during my time there, I was a minor league manager at Triple A, and had had some success there with some good teams. And, uh, but they had Sparky Anderson, uh, Hall of Fame manager, and there was no way that I was going to get an opportunity there with Sparky there, which I understood. So I moved on to Chicago with uh, Tony, the coach for a while, but to eventually get that opportunity, that call to to manage the Tigers, obviously was a big thrill, because like you say, I I signed there as an 18-year-old kid and And, you know, it looked like I was obviously going to finish my managerial career there.
0: I grew up watching a lot of the games you managed for Detroit um, with the Pirates during my childhood and teen years, not being very good and not having a team to watch in the playoffs a lot. I really rooted uh, for the Tigers because they weren't too far away and they had one guy I really liked who was Miguel Cabrera. Uh, In 2011, Miguel Cabrera won the Triple Crown, first time in the American League uh, since I think like the 60s would you say that was the most impressive offensive season you've seen from any player that you've coached or even managed against and uh could you just talk a little bit about what makes Miguel Cabrera great
1: yeah I would have to say so I don't think there's any question about that I think the thing that people forget too is usually when a guy you know, leads the league in the batting average. He's probably a guy that can run pretty good, get some infield hits or leg hits once in a while. While Cabrera didn't get any of those. I mean, Joe Torre didn't get any when he won the batting title. I forget what year it was. But, uh, you know, so, yes, it was uh, it was one of those magical years for Cabrera. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, he just did it all. RBIs, average, home runs. Uh, it was something to see. And, you know, very fortunate, really, to, to be his manager at that time.
0: Was it more frustrating not winning a ring in Detroit compared to not winning one in Pittsburgh? Uh, Pittsburgh, you know, you got to a couple Game 7s in the NLCS where Detroit, you had a couple appearances in the World Series. Was either one more frustrating that you couldn't really get another ring?
1: No, you know, I mean, obviously, I have strong ties here to Pittsburgh because I live here, and nobody wanted it more than I did, but nobody wanted it more than I did in Detroit either for this really. So you know uh, quite a bit of success i think you know we we got to the world series in detroit twice which we did not in pittsburgh so it was a little bit different it was frustrating um you know i think the second world series was probably more frustrating than the first because we got swept which i would have never believed but i think you know they beat verlander in the first game and they picked up steam and we kind of lost a little steam and you know i take that responsibility as a manager you know you got to make sure your team's ready and I thought we were ready and everything, but when they they beat Verlander in that first game, they picked up a lot of momentum, and uh, for whatever reason, we we didn't keep ours. We lost a little momentum, so, um, you know, at the end of the day, you you know, you win a World Series, you lose two World Series, you you know, everybody has the same story. It's not that easy to win. It's pretty tough uh, to win it all, so very fortunate that I did and and disappointed that I didn't win a couple more, but, uh, hey, that's just the way it goes. (laughs)
0: So i got a couple more things I wanted to ask you about as we wrap this up. The first one uh, actually comes from an interview I did recently with your friend Lanny Terry. Um, Lanny was telling me there was one time you guys were heading to an event, and you asked him how much money he made, and he told you, and you were like, oh, no, you need to make more. That's That's not acceptable. And you were with Pirates Ownership, and you basically said, Lanny deserves to make more money, and it ended up getting him a pay raise. Do you remember this story? Could you tell your side of it?
1: Well, I remember going to dinner that night. We were going to dinner Katie and I, uh, with Lanny and his wife Liz, and we were going to dinner and and uh, I asked him, how much money do you make? Well, we were going to dinner with Mark and Georgia Sauer, but Mark was our president at the time. So, uh, Lanny told me, and I said, okay. So, at dinner that night, I told Mark Sauer, I said, you know, Lanny deserves a raise. You need to give him a raise. And he called him in money and gave him a raise. So, Lanny thought that was the greatest thing I ever did for him, but You know, I was just kind of messing around, to be honest with you, but uh, it worked out pretty good for Lanny.
0: Another story that I stumbled upon while I was prepping for this interview was told by one of your many former players, Sean Casey. He was talking about how he was afraid to bother you while you were smoking cigarettes in the dugout. Uh, Do you remember this being the case, or was that, is this a little fabricated?
1: I think the stories get a little exaggerated as you get older. I don't quite remember that, to be honest with you, but...
0: He said it was in a game where he got hit by a pitch, and he was hurt and couldn't come back in, and he went down in the tunnel to tell you, and that's when you said, you know, don't don't interrupt me while I'm smoking, or something like that. I you remember said, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I
1: do remember that, yeah. But I was downstairs underneath. Yeah, I do remember that, but...
0: Was it different then because they made you smoke them in the tunnel? You couldn't just, you know, smoke cigarettes in the dugout like you did when you were with the Pirates? Well, I back? just
1: figured out that it wasn't a good look, to be honest with you, for kids or fans or anybody else. So, you know, I got smart enough to figure out that that wasn't a good look. I think when you did it, you weren't even really realizing it sometimes. And yeah. You know, sometimes you hit a little bit, sometimes you didn't, or you cupped it or whatever you did. It was not very smart on my part, to be honest with you. I think as hey. you get a little older you start to figure out hey that's that's not a good look particularly for the young kids.
0: Hey, I don't blame you for smoking during those uh days with the pirates. I mean, sometimes it was stressful in the playoffs, other times it was you know, just frustrating. So I you weren't the only one ripping heaters watching that ball club play. Uh so another managing job I wanted to ask you about was um one in 2017 when you managed the us team usa in the world baseball classic you became the first manager uh to win the gold medal for usa what was that experience like uh having you know leading that team to the first ever usa championship in the world baseball classic it was
1: probably the best worst job i ever had it was uh it was great because uh, we, we, Joe Torre, accumulated a bunch of great players, a bunch of outstanding players and the right players for that venue. It takes a special group of players, I think, for that particular venue. Um, a lot of pressure in that job because you were dealing with a lot of players that were under big contracts. Not that the money means anything, but it does. I mean, you got some of the star players that are making big salaries and everything. They just got the spring training. They're really not. You're asking them to amp up a little early. Uh, earlier than they normally would. So you're a little nervous about injuries and things of that nature, and you're responsible for some other team's players. So from that standpoint, it was a little bit of a nerve-wracking job. On the other side of the coin, uh, Joe, like I say, put together a great group of guys with great personalities, great players, but just the right mix. Uh, we, we, We really had a perfect mix in the clubhouse for that thing. And these guys were, they were all in. They were all in from day one of the first workout. But they were bound to determine they were going to win this thing. They were tired of hearing about the USA never winning it, never getting to the finals, actually. So they were they were all in. And we just tried to kind of keep urging them along easy, you know, not put too much pressure on them, but just kind of, you know, prepping them along the way and, and trying to get them in the right mindset. But uh, when they came in there, they were they were all set. They were bound to determine that they were going to give a good performance, whether we want it or not. We were, They were going to be proud of that performance when we got done with it. So... It worked out great, and it is. I'm proud to say that I was the first manager ever to win that thing with the with the USA, but, you know, once again, it goes back to the players. I mean, we had the right players. We had good players. They performed, and, you know, we ended up being the best team in the tournament.
0: You mentioned a name a few times throughout this interview, Tony La Russa. He's back in baseball. Are you surprised to see him managing in 2020? Did you know anything about this White Sox opportunity?
1: Well, I wasn't surprised because I talked to him. Pretty much three, four times a week. So I knew that there was a possibility. At first, I was a little shocked, to be honest with you. But uh, as we went on with conversations throughout the weeks, I could tell that he was very serious about it. Um, I think it's great. I think uh, the big key is, uh, you know, his energy level and his health is going to be the big key. And he fortunately has both of those right now. And they could have not made a better choice if he's if he's healthy and 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 ready to go and has the energy. Uh, To me, the choice was a no-brainer. He's one of the greatest managers to ever manage. He's inheriting a good ball club. I don't think he'll have any problem relating to the young players. I I still believe that I could relate to young players as good as a young manager can. I I love young people. I think I know how to get along with them. I think Tony does, too. Um, You know, it's a little bit different, but people are people. And you treat them with respect. You treat them right. You'll have a relationship with them, and you'll get along with them. So, uh, you know, unless... You know, the White Sox players aren't bound to determine that their biggest mission is to win a championship. Uh, they're going to do fine. You know, they're, they're going to do absolutely fine. And Tony Roos is going to do fine. He's one of the greatest managers to ever manage. He's sharp as attack, He wants to do it. He's into it. And uh, he will be a big asset for the city of Chicago once again.
0: I find it kind of crazy how similar this current White Sox team is to another team Tony's managed in the in the late 80s Oakland A's. I mean, both teams have a lot of speed, both teams have a lot of power, and both teams have a lot of personality. Do you think that he'll translate well to this current White Sox group?
1: Yeah, plus I think people forget Tony LaRusso's got a lot of personality, Yeah, contrary yeah, to what people think. Tony's as fired as it gets, maybe sometimes to a fault. Uh, so, you know, he's got a lot of energy and, and you know, he's, he's got his own uh, you know, little annexes that, that go on. You know, he's a, he's a personality himself. So I don't think that's going to bother him at all. He had Ricky Henderson. He had Kenseiko. He had all those guys. They had a style, Eckersley. I don't think this this new wave of the annex after home runs and stuff is going to shock him at all. And, you know, my son pointed this out to me, you know, and I think this is correct. He said, it's the player's game. And if the players want to do that stuff, it's the player's game. Let them do it. What's the difference? You know, it's their game. And I think that's a great point. You know, I had guys do it, and I kind of looked the other way, you know, and I'd wait till they were done, and then I'd look up. But you know what? That's true. It's in every sport, football, basketball, baseball. So be it. These guys are young guys. They're enthusiastic. They're energy. They have big moments. Let them show the emotion. Who cares?
0: My final question for you, since we're on the topic of managers, is about uh, the Pirates' current manager, Derek Shelton. Uh, I know you reached out to him Uh, right after he accepted the job here in Pittsburgh I just wanted to see if you kept in contact with him throughout the season and uh, what you thought of his first year leading the Pirates
1: yeah I just had breakfast with him a couple weeks ago actually Uh, yeah I I didn't talk to him too much during the season but a few times Uh, you know just a text or a little phone call because I didn't want to get in his way Uh, but when he came here I, I, I I felt it was proper to to go out of my way to welcome him here and to let him know a little bit about what i went through here and how much i loved it and how much he was going to enjoy the city and what a great place pittsburgh was and uh, you know I, I felt that was important maybe help relax him a little bit and you know sometimes you know you come up here with your wife and kid you're moving to a different place it, it can be a little disruptive but i just wanted him to know how much he was going to love it and and uh, you know be himself and the pittsburgh people are going to love him i knew they would and they will um so yeah, I, I keep in a little bit of contact with him. I really like him. I think he's a perfect fit for the job. And he's kind of where I was my first year. You gotta, you're got, you going to have to have some patience. Uh, you know, you can't become impatient. And I think he understands that. And they got a very, very bright general manager. Very smart. So I think things are going to work out. Uh, they're never going to spend the huge, huge dollars, I don't believe. And that's okay. Uh, there are teams with lesser payrolls that have won like oklahoma tampa bay so you know it can be done uh, and i think he's a perfect fit
0: all right well jim that's all i got thank you so much for uh, coming down memory lane with me i really enjoyed this and i'm sure all of our listeners did as well
1: thank you very much for having me i enjoyed it